Would you please open your Bible to Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. <clears throat> I don't know if Bruce read her head in the scripture this week, but those were perfect songs, brother, for what we're going to consider this morning. And I actually had studied through the middle of chapter 23. We're not going to get that far because I got stuck on Peter and Peter's denial. We're going to look at that. I know it's a familiar story to most of you. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke, if you're visiting this morning, now for almost two years, and we are in chapter 22, and we've been considering most recently what's called the Passion Narrative. That's the, the, the story of Jesus' passion or his, his sufferings. The word passion really in its most uh, fundamental root sense means suffering. So this is the stories of Jesus' sufferings, and particularly the sufferings of the cross. But the things that lead up to the cross as well, beginning with the Last Supper. So Jesus has shared the Last Supper with his disciples. It was a Passover meal. He had been using the elements of the Passover meal to speak about his death, right? His body would be broken. His blood would be poured out. It would all be for their redemption. And then they, they spend time around the table talking about things, matters that, that were crucial for discipleship, matters of, of how they should live, uh, what their mission would be, uh, what would life entail for them in the near future and in, even into the, into the far future, the more distant future. And after they get done talking, Jesus and the disciples move up to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prays. And then, of course, at the end of praying, we have his arrest. Judas comes to betray Jesus. The Jewish leadership takes custody of him. And that's where we are in the story is, is, is that Jesus is now being transferred over to the high priest's house, uh, high priest's home. And we have Peter. And we want to look today at Peter, not just what he does, but also want to use it as a lens to think about our own discipleship. School's back in session now, so kids are back to doing their schoolwork. I don't know if the kids have had their first test yet or not. I know my boys have had some quizzes. There's always that evaluation, right? There's those tests to see what you've learned, evaluating the knowledge that's been taught to you, how you have gained it, how you've processed it, how, how much you've learned it. And Peter here is a good, this text is a good way for us to think about our own discipleship, to evaluate our own discipleship. It's going to be very easy to evaluate Peter. It's be very easy for us to point fingers at Peter. But I want us to see Peter's life as sort of a window into our, our own life. If I had to ask you to put a grade on your discipleship, what grade would you give yourself? How would you evaluate your own discipleship? Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, calls us, he urges us, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. If you, if you believe in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have been called to be a disciple. How are you now walking in that calling? Let's look at, let's look at Peter's life and, and evaluate Peter and evaluate our own lives and see kind of where we are and how the Lord might use his word to move us even more forward into a, into a better discipleship, a more faithful discipleship maybe than where we are this morning. Uh, Luke chapter 22. I want to start in verse 54. We're just going to read to verse 62. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. 
And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. We're going to look at this passage, just kind of walk through it verse by verse today. The, the outline's not complicated. I've got some things up on the overhead. But really, just want to move through the story, starting in verse 54. We just mentioned that Jesus was arrested. He'd been betrayed by Judas. He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now that he is in the custody of the Jewish leadership, he is being taken and moved to the high priest's home in verse 54. And it'd be there in those overnight hours that Jesus would be questioned by the high priest and, and others of the Jewish leadership that had come and assembled there. And they would continue to question and ask, you know, interrogate Jesus as to, to the things that they had been charging him of, looking for a, an airtight case against him they could present to the Roman governor who would be the one that would have to authorize their execution of Jesus. We're going to get to that, those trials next week. But we notice that Peter is following along, it says in verse 54, that he is following along at a distance. Now we know Peter, of course, was the most prominent of Jesus' disciples. He was what we might call the first among equals. All disciples were followers of Jesus, the twelve, those that were closest to Jesus. Peter was sort of the the, the, the first one, not in, in terms of status or, or, or uh, priority, but just the, the one that spoke to him. He was a spokesman. He was the guy who was kind of out front. He was the, sort of the, the leader of the band, if you will. He had been the most vocal supporter of Jesus during his ministry. And we might remember that back in verse 33, Peter had pledged himself to be ready to go with Jesus to prison and even to death when that time came. Peter was following Jesus. He continues to follow Jesus even now in verse 54. But notice that it says that he follows Jesus at a distance. Now, the word follow in the Gospels typically is used to relate discipleship. It, it, it means that it follow in a literal sense, but in a more metaphorical sense, in a more uh, discipleship sense. It, it refers to following after Jesus as a disciple. A disciple is one who follows Jesus. He goes where Jesus goes. He does what Jesus does. He learns from Jesus. He imitates Jesus. In fact, the goal of discipleship is, is patterning one's life to Jesus' life. The goal of discipleship is, is imitating Jesus in every sense of that word. So in this context, yes, I want to make the point that Peter is, is literally following Jesus. He's, he's walking behind him at some distance. He is tracing his steps. He is going to the same place where Jesus is being taken. And that's really what the picture of, of discipleship should look, to, look, to, should look like. It's, it's still present here. Peter is still following Jesus as a disciple. Even though it's in a literal sense, he is still going where Jesus is going. He is still following Jesus. We know from Matthew 26, he's following Jesus out of curiosity to, to learn what's, what's going to happen to him. Perhaps he's going thinking that you know, maybe he's going to give Jesus some kind of support, maybe moral support or emotional support, if nothing else. But Peter still yet has not given up on Jesus. He's still following him, but he's following him at a distance. 
If we consider Peter's following, if we compare Peter's following to sort of the expectation of Christian discipleship, that should startle us. We don't follow Jesus at a distance. Peter should not be following Jesus at a distance. This is not what discipleship should look like. Disciples are, to, are supposed to follow Jesus closely. You might remember back in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, we're told that Jesus went, went away to go and to, to, to pray. It says that he went up on a mountain. He prayed over the night, considering who would be his disciples. And it says that he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. Do you see those words of proximity? Those words of nearness? Those words of closeness? When Jesus called his disciples, he didn't call them to follow at a distance. He called them to himself, to his side. He called them to be with him. He called them to follow him closely. To witness his ministry. To hear his proclamation of the gospel, his preaching of the kingdom of God, to learn from him. And they were privileged among all of the disciples that Jesus would have in that time, and, and even more so in our own day or in, in, in the ages to follow. They had a front row seat to Jesus' ministry. They were in the closest possible position to him to learn from him. He wanted them to see his life. He wanted them to learn from him. And so he had them near to them. So the statement there in verse 54 that Peter was following at a, at a distance should indicate to us that something is seriously wrong. He should be following Jesus closely, not at a distance. So why, why, is, why the distance there for Peter? Why is he following Jesus at a distance? There, there are probably several reasons. First of all, Jesus is in trouble, right? Jesus has been arrested. He is in custody. And while Peter may not know exactly why Jesus has been arrested, we do know that Jesus had disclosed to Peter and the other disciples that he was the Messiah. And because he was the Messiah, they probably believed that there would be some kind of military-style conflict as he ushered in his kingdom. They believed that Jesus was more than a political Messiah, but they believed that he was at least a political Messiah, at least still at this point, and even on the day of ascension, right? Lord, at this time, will you return the kingdom to Israel? We've been waiting this long time for this political thing to happen. It hasn't happened yet. We understand there's more to it than that, but we're still expecting that. They had some kind of political idea that, that Jesus was going to usher in his kingdom, and probably because the Romans were in charge, it was going to require some kind of conflict or, or military-style battle. Now, here we are in the Garden of Gethsemane, moving on the way to the high priest's house, and the one whom Peter had hoped would be the Messiah has been taken captive. He is in the custody of his enemies. He's helpless. And think about what that means for Peter. Peter is not only an associate of Jesus, he's his right-hand man. So there's probably some fear of being discovered and arrested and mistreated as well in his part. And so Peter, I think, partly follows at a distance, out of self-preservation. Secondly, remember that Jesus has been talking about his own death. He's been talking about it now for at least a year. He has been disclosing to his disciples that he would be rejected, he would suffer many things, he would be put to death. In fact, Luke records six such statements that Jesus made to the disciples in this last year of his life. And now, just 
several hours earlier. At the Passover meal, Jesus had been purposefully emphasizing his death once again, right? He was using the elements of the Passover meal, the bread and the, and the wine. His body would be broken. His blood would be poured out in death. And now that Jesus has been apprehended, these things seem truer than ever. And that again poses a risk for Peter. Now, what Peter said in the upper room is put to the test. Did Peter really mean, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death? Did he really mean it? Because now, in that upper room, it was theoretical, but now it's not. Now it's a real situation. It's a real experience. Let's also remember that Peter had just pulled a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane. He attempted to defend Jesus, right? He made a preemptive strike against the high priest's servant, attacked him, cut off his ear. And while he thought he was doing the right thing, Jesus rebuked him. Remember back in verse 51, Jesus said, no more of this. This is not how we're going to do it. This is not how I'm going to bring my kingdom in. So Peter, who had committed himself to his Lord's cause, had just been told by his Lord to put away his sword. Jesus had literally taken the, the, the only weapon that Peter had out of his hand. So what's Peter supposed to do now? How is he supposed to defend his Lord? How is he going to take up his master's cause? How is he going to help bring in the kingdom? It's as if everything that Peter knew and believed just evaporated in a matter of moments. How does he follow Jesus now? How does he respond to the situation? How does he respond to the arrest of Jesus? What does he do next? There's so much uncertainty here about how to follow Jesus that Peter follows at a distance. So Peter here does not follow Jesus in the way that a disciple would normally, ordinarily follow Jesus. And it reflects a problem in Peter's discipleship. But, to his credit, he's still following Jesus. And even though it's at a distance, he eventually arrives at the home of the high priest. He, in verse 55, joins others in the courtyard, probably high priest servants, maybe other of the Jewish leadership servants. Some of the security detail there. Maybe even lower levels, backbenchers, if you will, junior associates of the Jewish leadership. They're gathered in the courtyard of the high priest's home. They've, they've, they lit, have lit a fire to warm themselves in the, the chilly uh, spring air of the evening. Peter has moved into the courtyard and there he sits. And a very dangerous company, is it not? Here he is, an associate of Jesus, one who is known to be with Jesus, putting himself right there in the situation where he is in this hostile environment where he could be noticed and, and great danger come to him personally. It's around this fire then that, G, that Peter hears or faces three accusations of being Jesus' disciples in verses 56 to 60. The first accusation comes in verse 56. It's the accusation from a servant girl in the high priest's household. It's dark in the courtyard. It's the middle of the night. The fire's lit, and in the glow of the fire, this servant girl is just looking. In fact, it says she was looking closely at me. The word literally means she was staring. She's staring at Peter, seeing that she recognizes him. In fact, in verse 56, she says, this man also was with him. But what is Peter's response in verse 57? It says that he emphatically denied it. He says, woman, I do not know him. In Greek, that's a very, very emphatic denial. The word deny that is used here that Peter or that Luke uses is the same word for deny that Jesus had said in verse 34. 
when he told Peter, you're going to deny me, that word comes back again, right? It's kind of drawing the whole thing for us together as readers. In the Greek language, the, 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 the wording here is very emphatic. Peter is emphatically denying Jesus, that he knows Jesus. But even from a Jewish cultural point of view, this is also a strong denial. When Jewish leaders banned members from the synagogue, they would say, we no longer know you. It was the ultimate form of repudiation in the Jewish culture. In essence, they were saying, from this point on, we have nothing to do with you. And the language here seems to imitate that. Peter here is not just simply saying, no, I'm not sure. He is emphatically disassociating himself from Christ. In fact, he couldn't deny Jesus more strongly. The second accusation comes a little bit later in verse 58. Another person, an unidentified man by the fire, probably does the same thing as the servant girl that's been mentioned now. He's been kind of looking at him, staring at him. Yeah, I think I see some resemblance. And he accuses Peter of being one of them, being one of the disciples, those who follow Jesus, connecting Peter again to Jesus. But again, Peter emphatically denies it in verse 58. He says, man, I am not. And then about another hour later, a third accusation. Says another man insists, the word in Greek there means as he was adamant. This man insists that Peter is a disciple of Jesus. Again, using a very similar description as the servant girl. They both say that this man, Peter, was with him. Which again, if we think about when Jesus called the disciples to be disciples in Mark chapter chapter 3 verses 13 and 14, that language with him was there making a strong connection of discipleship. This is what discipleship should look like. Disciples should be with Jesus. But he sees more here than just the association. He also gives the circumstantial evidence that strengthens his charge. Peter, he says, is is a Galilean, like Jesus is a Galilean. In fact, Matthew's Gospel tells us that when Peter spoke, his Galilean accent betrayed him. There was a distinction there. Kind of like, you know, when Adam does the call to worship on Sunday mornings, He's got that little Jersey accent to him, right? Somebody else who's from the, who's from the, if Jill were up here, say, make an announcement, we get that thick southern drawl, right? They're both speaking the same language, but we can tell one's from not here and one's from like right deep in the heart of this place, right? We can tell by that accent. And so the same idea here is happening in the, around this fire. They can tell by the accent that Peter is Galilean. Now, why in the world would a Galilean be sitting around a fire in the high priest's courtyard when another Galilean is in the high priest's house in custody, in prison, being held for some crime? Why would those two be in the same place unless there was, unless they share a strong relationship? But Peter once again emphatically denies that he knows Jesus. In verse 60 he says, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Three accusations, three strong, emphatic denials. And Luke says, at that moment, immediately he says in verse 60, the rooster crowed. That brings us back to Jesus' prediction of the denial, right? Which Luke is going to inform us about. The rooster crowing here indicates that it's the middle of the night. The third watch of the night was about midnight to 3 a.m. And near the end of that that watch, near about the 3 o'clock a.m. hour, the roosters would crow. In fact, it was called, the name of the, the watch is called cock crow. The time when the roosters start crowing. So, when Peter makes his emphatic denial, this rooster starts crowing. And at that same moment, Luke says, 
Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Again, the word there, look, is a strong word. It means to fix one's gaze upon. So in that moment that Peter is speaking this emphatic denial that he does not know Jesus, he does not have a relationship with Jesus at all, their eyes lock and Jesus gazes into the face of Peter. And I love here that as Luke is telling the story, what name does he use for Jesus? He doesn't use Jesus' name, does he? In verse 61, he says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Luke, as he's telling the story, is indicating what's happening here. He refers to Jesus as, the Lord, which incidentally is the same title with which Peter addressed Jesus back in chapter 5, verse 8. You might remember that story. Jesus had told the master fisherman, right, Peter, they've been out all night, they've been fishing, they've had no success at all. It's been hard, they've been coming in, they've been washing the nets, and Jesus says, go back out onto the lake, go to the deep part, and drop your nets again. And Peter's like, why? We've been out all night, We've been fishing all night. We haven't caught a single thing. We're the expert fishermen. You're some carpenter, and you're telling us to go back out. And do it. Okay, we'll, we'll do it just to humor you. And what happened when they went back out there? So they let their nets down. They drew a huge haul of fish. And what was Peter's response to that? Do you remember? Luke chapter 5, verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I think Luke is trying to connect what's happening here and Peter's failure in this moment to his confession when Jesus first called him to be a disciple in Luke chapter 5. And he strengthens that by using the word Lord twice in verse 61. The word Lord, I think, says something about Jesus. He is the sovereign Lord over all. He is the King of creation. He is the one who possesses all authority. He is the one who wields omnipotent power. But it also says something more personal. Something about Jesus' relationship to Peter, does it not? Jesus is Peter's Lord and Master. Jesus is Peter's Lord and Master. Peter is Jesus' disciple. He bows his knee to Jesus. Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. But by denying Jesus, Peter has denied Jesus' lordship over him. So when Peter here emphatically denies the Lord, as he emphatically denies Jesus, he is unhinging himself from Jesus. From a very practical standpoint, it's almost as if he is undoing his discipleship. And it's at that moment when, when Jesus and Peter, when their eyes lock, that Peter remembers, he hears the rooster crow, Jesus looks and gazes into his eyes and he remembers what Jesus had said just a few hours earlier at the supper table. In verse 34, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, deny three times that you know me. In fact, Luke even repeats that statement in verse 61. Jesus also proved to be right in chapter 22, verse 40. After they had gone out into the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told Peter, he told the rest of the disciples that were with him, he says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. The time of temptation was at the door. Peter needed to watch himself and, and pray to resist temptation so that he could stand strong in that moment of testing. 
But Peter did not pray. What did he do? He fell asleep with the other disciples. And so in that moment of, of testing, as he is being accused of being a disciple of Jesus, he stands spiritually naked and he succumbs to the temptation. Well, at that point, as all this is happening, Peter's emphatically denying the roosters crowing, Jesus and Peter are locking their eyes. Jesus is gazing, staring into Peter's face. Peter remembered what Jesus said. And it says in verse 62 that he went out and wept bitterly. So overcome with guilt, so overcome with shame that he goes out grieving, weeping bitterly over how he has handled this challenge. This expression of of weeping bitterly expresses very deep grief, intense grief and remorse over what he had done. The word weep appears two other times in the Gospel of Luke in situations where there is mourning over someone who's died. You can think about the grief when someone that you love dies and the grief and the mourning you feel for that. That's the, the weeping there was that when the widow of Nain's son died, she wept for him. When Jairus' daughter died, he wept for her. There was great weeping. Peter is weeping here, very intense. It's all, the word's also used with a sinful woman. Remember her? When she came and she, she wept at Jesus' feet and she washed Jesus' feet with her hair. So that she was weeping in brokenness over her own sin. She was so ashamed of what she had done that she is expressing that shame. She's expressing that guilt in this profound weeping, this profound grief. And the word bitterly here intensifies, it adds to the intensity of that emotion. So Peter here is crushed by his failure. He feels an instant remorse. He's inconsolable because he's denied his Lord, not just his Lord, but the Lord and Messiah. So at this point, Peter withdraws to the shadows of the passion narrative. He won't, we won't see him again in the narrative until the day of resurrection. So in Jesus' darkest hour, this time of questioning, his beatings, mockings, ultimately crucifixion, Peter is absent from the story. He's missing. He's not what we would expect of a disciple. Now here would be a good place to remind ourselves of the rest of the story. Because if you leave it there, it's kind of hopeless. But we know the rest of the story. Many of us have read it, studied it. If you don't know it, this is a great way to see sort of the bigger picture of what's happening, not just in Peter's life, but in what Jesus does for us. This is not going to be Peter's finest hour. But it is also not the defining moment of his life. We need to remember that when Jesus predicted Peter's failure back in verse 34, he also prophesied Peter's redemption. Look back at verse 31. Same chapter, verse 31. Jesus introduces this idea of what's going to happen. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Stop there just for a second. We remember, hopefully remember that the, the word you there that appears twice in verse 31 is really the plural. Jesus is addressing Peter, but he's really speaking to all of the disciples. Satan has asked to pick apart the disciples, to utterly destroy them, to crush them. 
But in verse 32, Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now in verse 32, again as he is addressing Peter, the words you and your that appear four times in that verse are singular. He is directing this comment specifically to Peter. So what does he say about Peter? He says, first of all, that Peter's faith is not going to fail. Right? The word fail, fail, fail there is more of a failure in a permanent sense or a, a complete sense, an ultimate sense. Peter will deny the Lord. He's going to fail in denying the Lord, but his denial will not result in complete and permanent failure. So Peter's faith, as difficult as this is, as much of a trial as this is, Peter's faith will endure the crisis. That's good news. It promises us in advance there's going to be redemption for Peter. But he also goes on to say that when Peter has turned again, the word that's used there in the Greek is the the word that Luke oftentimes means as by repentance often translated as repentance or repent. When Peter has repented of this sin, when he has turned again to Christ, he is to strengthen his brothers and to encourage them and to restore them to their ongoing faithfulness. Well, these things, right, Peter's repentance and his restoration occur sometime during that 40-day period between the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven. I would encourage you to read the entire story in John chapter 21. It's very encouraging. It's very hopeful, full of promise and redemption and to see the beauty of the gospel. But I want to focus just on verses 15 to 17 for a moment. This is John 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, talking about the disciples, they had just gone out fishing. Interestingly enough, they'd gone out fishing all night and not caught anything. Almost like a repeat of what happened when Peter was first called to be a disciple. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, sir. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Isn't it neat how Peter denied the Lord three times? And now as Jesus is bringing Peter back into the fold, restoring that relationship, he asked Peter three times, do you love me? He's prompting Peter to confess his love. And each time when Peter says, yes, Lord, in fact, David says, you know I love you. Which, interestingly, in the case of Luke, when he's denying the Lord, he says, I do not know him. So he's saying here, I know you, Lord. I love you. Jesus, each time, gives him the charge. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. In other words, he's encouraging him here, exhorting him to strengthen his brothers, to feed and to disciple the sheep of Christ's flock. So just as Jesus' prediction about Peter's denial was true to every last detail, so also was Jesus' promise to restore Peter, to redeem him, to put him back into his place of discipleship. Those promises were true to every last detail. And if that wasn't good enough, Jesus takes Peter up on his offer and gives him an opportunity to make good on the commitment he made in the upper room. I, will, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. The story goes on, John 21, verse 18. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Peter says, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And now Jesus says, I know and you will. Peter wasn't ready in that moment at the upper room. But because of Christ's restoration, he gives Peter the opportunity to show just how much he loves the Lord, how, how willing he is to walk in the path of being a disciple. And then to put the cherry on top, Jesus reaffirms Peter's call to discipleship with the same words, this very same words that he spoke to him when he first called Peter to be a disciple. Again, John 21 Verse 19, after saying all these things, he said to him, follow me. Follow me. Isn't that profound? He called Peter with those words, follow me. And now, even after Peter has denied his Lord three times and seemingly turned away from Christ and cut off that relationship with Christ, now Jesus extends the same invitation he gave, gave Peter at the very beginning. Follow me. How beautiful that is. The Lord redeems and restores His own. He does it graciously and lovingly. He doesn't remind Peter about his fall. He didn't, well, we don't know. It's not in the record of Scripture, right? But the Scripture does not record here Jesus chastising Peter over his denial. He's not marking demerits on Peter's record. He's not placing limits on Peter's discipleship. What Jesus offers Peter is redemption and restoration, full and free and complete. He brings Peter right back to the pure and simple call to follow him. Now, I got lost in the story this week. I intended to go much farther. There's something here that resonates. I don't know, every time I read this story, it just kind of resonates with me. I think it's a very popular story in that sense. We can kind of see ourselves in the story. It does feel a little bit like looking in the mirror. I mean, on the one hand, we can criticize Peter. We see in him for his failures. We can condemn him for his, for his failures. But we also see ourselves in him, don't we? I see that I could do this. This is very possible for me. I think a lot of us would probably say, I'm more like Peter than I care to admit. Peter's example here is what I'm just calling real discipleship. And I don't mean that in the sense of that's what we should be, but more in the sense of what we probably actually are. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, this is Peter near the end of his life, writing a letter to Christians who have been dispersed all throughout the Roman world. He says this, Simon Peter, and I'm using the New American Standard here, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice that phrase that we have received a faith of the same kind as ours. What Peter's saying is, writing this letter, look, you've received the same faith that we have. It's not that Peter has extra faith. Peter has a superior faith. Our faith is inferior. Peter's not saying that at all. He says, look, my faith in the gospel is your faith in the gospel. My hope in Christ's salvation is your hope in Christ's salvation. We share the same faith. We believe the same gospel. Our hope in Christ's salvation is freely given to all who believe. So the details of Peter's 
faith journey are going to be different, but we can see the parallels to our own lives. There, there are a lot of similarities between Peter's life and ours. In fact, Peter's discipleship here is a representative case of our own discipleship. It's a picture of what, what discipleship of real followers of Jesus looks like. Now, again, hear me closely. It's not a picture of what discipleship should look like. It's a picture of what discipleship usually looks like or probably, probably looks like in our lives. A discipleship of imperfect following of Jesus. A discipleship of repeated failure. A discipleship of more moments of faithlessness than I want to try to count up. Like Peter, our profession is bold, right? I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. But our actions tend to be rather weak. I don't know him. I can't do this. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not making an excuse for us. I'm not saying that we should resign ourselves to being imperfect or failed disciples. That is a big problem in current Christianity. I'm just a broken Christian. I'm a broken sinner. I got my stuff. I just got to deal with it. And it's almost like we've just resigned ourselves to living that kind of life. I'm not suggesting that we do that here at all. But I do want to give an honest and realistic picture of what our discipleship generally looks like from a practical point of view. We need to be mindful of what we are. That we're disciples like Peter. We are flawed. We are imperfect. We are at times faithless. But I would also say at the same time, we want to be mindful of what we've been called to. We need to be mindful of whose we are and to what we have been called. Yes, flawed, but who do we belong to? To what have we been called? When we are kind of tempted to just be abandon our discipleship, or we are so overwhelmed by the grief that we failed the Lord, we need to remember that our discipleship rests not upon us, but upon Christ. We are not kept by our works, but we are kept by His grace. We depend not upon our faithfulness, but upon Christ's faithfulness. We are not accepted because of the vain sacrifices of penance or, or vows to, to do better next time. But we are accepted fully and freely because of Christ's atoning sacrifice for us. We rest in Christ. We rest on His faithfulness. Our identity is in Him. And Peter, I think, gets this, right? Of course, a lot happens between the time he denies the Lord and the end of his life. But again, as he's near the end of his life, he's writing to the Christians, the first letter this time, Christians scattered abroad who are suffering great persecution for following Jesus. This is what Peter says to them, to flawed, imperfect, sometimes faithless disciples. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. The one who went out from the high priest's house weeping bitterly because he had failed the Lord, came to understand that his discipleship didn't rest upon his political convictions or his bravado or his leadership ability. It rested upon his Lord who died and was raised again for him. As imperfect and failed disciples then, we must access the grace and mercy of God. 
Jesus has called us to Himself. God has saved us in Christ. He forgives our sins. He calls us to be His children. We are accepted and blessed in His beloved Son. He helps us in time of need. So if we are trusting in Christ, if we are hanging on to His Gospel, whatever failures we make as Christians, and I'm chief among them this week, whatever failures we make as Christians, our failure is not permanent. Every day, in every failure, we depend upon the grace of Christ and the hope of His Gospel. But, our imperfect discipleship is not an excuse for continual failure. We don't wash our hands of it and say, that's just who I am. The Bible calls us to pursue faithfulness. It calls us to pursue sanctification, right? Sanctification just means to be set apart. We've been set apart by God to be His people. God has called us to live this set-apart life that reflects His character and will, right? Faithfulness doesn't just happen. We must pursue it. The Scriptures give us the imperatives, the commands, the things that we must lay our hands to. We must strive for holiness. We must work to attain our sanctification. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is God's will for your life. God desires you to be holy and to walk in that holiness. Peter himself, with that great reminder of the Gospel in the first part of his first letter, a little bit later on, that same chapter, calls his fellow believers to that higher standard. He says, you've been saved. Christ has saved you. You have this inheritance in heaven reserved for you. You have this hope of a, of a future salvation that is coming. And then he says in verse 13, 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, based on all of that, on what Christ has done for you, therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't keep failing. Don't stay in your imperfection. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the standard. That's the goal. We must pursue it. And we need help. We need help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit, which, of course, we see it's the beauty of Peter's story, right? He fails the Lord miserably here, but on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and fills him. And he is now able to walk in this, this, this life of discipleship, this life of sanctification, still making mistakes, still stumbling, but pursuing the high calling the Lord had put upon his life. And that same Spirit is promised to us. It is given to us. God provides what we need in the Holy Spirit to pursue faithfulness in our discipleship. And we also need to remember the warning that Jesus gave to Peter and the other disciples twice in the Garden of Gethsemane, back in verse 40. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. We need to be watchful. We need to pray for faithfulness. We need to pray for the strength to endure the coming trials. Because sin is crouching at the door. I can promise you right now, it is right outside that door. You're going to be on this, this spiritual high. It's been great to worship. The music's been wonderful to sing these praises to God. We've been fellowshipping with one another. Hopefully the Word has been encouraging and lifted you up. We're going to take communion. It's going to be a great thing. And right outside that door is going to be a sin for all of us, waiting to pounce on us and overtake us. Beware of it. Pray that we stand against temptation. Pray for God's help to stand. So, there's this really delicate balance, right? 
We have the ideal discipleship on the one side, this pursuit of sanctification, the high calling to which we've been called, and then we've got sort of our own lives, this what I call real discipleship, where what we are in actuality. And don't worry, you'll be buoyed up. Yeah, I'm going to go pray. I'm going to be psyched up to face temptation, to walk in faithfulness, do all the commands of God this week. And next Sunday, I promise you, you're going to feel a lot like you were when you came in this morning. I'm just glad to be here today. I can't tell you how many times I've denied the Lord. I can't tell you how many times I've failed Him in my life this week. That's what it actually is. And that seems to be that's what it's going to be until the Lord comes. But don't let us stop you. Keep pursuing. Keep walking. Keep striving to imitate our Lord into whose image we are being conformed. We do so in the gracious context of the gospel that makes us disciples and that keeps us disciples no matter how often and how hard we might fall. So Peter's discipleship is really more a, a reflection of the call of Christ in Peter's life and the work of Christ in Peter's life than it is about Peter. Peter's life is more about Jesus at work in Peter than it is about Peter. While Peter denied Christ and went out weeping bitterly, what happens to Jesus? He remains in custody, suffers ridicule, is beaten, blasphemed, endures illegitimate sham trials, and ultimately is crucified to rescue and redeem and restore his sorry excuse of a disciple. And so he did, not just for Peter, but for us all. We must not follow Jesus from a distance. As imperfect disciples, let us keep drawing near to Jesus and keep hearing his call to us. Follow me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth, its power, its conviction, its grace. We do thank you, Lord, for these snippets in the lives of the disciples that reveal to us, Lord, more than just what they were, it reveals to us a little bit of something about ourselves. But even more so, it reveals to us how great a Savior we have. That even though we are imperfect, even though we are flawed, even though we grieve over our failures, that you did what was possible, not just to call us to be disciples, but to keep us as your disciples. That our discipleship does not rest upon us, but it rests upon you. Because of your sufficient sacrifice, because of your eternal love, we are kept in your power until the day of our salvation. So Lord, help us. Help us to strive to that upward calling you've given to us. Help us to strive and to apprehend the sanctification to which we've been called. Help us, Lord, to be faithful disciples. Ultimately, Lord, so that you might be glorified and that your gospel might be spread through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.